think it was the beginning, more than anything else, of reimagining what that performance space could be. So rather than it being a space of competition and judgment and scrutiny mm -hmm. and winning or losing, there's this celebratory pose of this person with their hands up. They've just completed something. They've presented themselves to to a sort of a ring around them of judges. But those judges are not judges. They're, for me, they were ancestors, actually. So it was something about presenting yourself in front of those who came before you, and not for judgment, not for anything, just to be with, saying, I'm here now. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. Our guest on this episode of the Latitudes podcast is New York-born, South African-based multimedia artist Tenji Wengosi. She's best known for her sparse, pastel-hued canvases of an imagined black gymnastics team. Their rounded collegial postures are incredibly arresting in contrast to the stark architectural lines of the gymnasium. Other works that Tenji is popular for is her Heroes collection, which is made up of portraits of black trailblazers, and this was recently shown at the 15th Sharjah Biennale. Tenji's work examines issues of memory, race and identity, and takes a deep and significant look at the scaffolding that underpins and props them up. In this conversation, we look at these touchpoints through Tenji's personal and professional lens, and just like her work, Tenjiwe is generous in her sharing and very intentional about what she says and how she does so. Let's take a listen. Thank you so much for making the time and agreeing so readily and enthusiastically to talk to me. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And actually, we're just noting that you're actually the very first guest we've had live in studio. All our conversations have been remote up until now. And it's so nice to have another warm body other than me, myself, myself, <laughs> Jason, my producer, engineer in studio. It really is cool. It's fun. Yeah. And it's also, yeah, for me, I'm alone so much in the studio that it's nice to look into the eyes of another oh, human yeah. being. Actually, you know what? This, that's not where I was going to start. But talk to me about your studio practice and the sort of, yeah, what kind of rituals or structures or routine you've set up for yourself with regards to working in the studio and, and that solitude that you talk about. Um, yeah, the this, this sort of practice, um, the studio rituals and, the, and my practice go through seasons. Yeah. And that 
sort of depends on all the elements that are involved. So my partner and we have a, a, a little seven-year-old and depending on where we are in the year, for everybody, it will take a different shape. But mm-hmm. generally I come in there in the morning and I like to read a little bit before I start or have a cup of tea and settle in. Yeah. And then... Yeah, and then it, it really actually week to week depends if I start with a bang and go straight into the painting. Usually there's a podcast that mm-hmm. is on at any given moment. I listen to a lot of um, Buddhist Dharma talks, mm-hmm. various teachers from around the world. I'm yeah leaning towards, there are a lot of American teachers that I'm into mm-hmm. and black Buddhist queer teachers who I find are interpreting the texts in ways that I, are more accessible to me and make more sense to yes. me and yeah. often interact, intersect, intersect with questions around social justice and Buddhism. So that's, yeah, that's, so the, then there's just a lot of painting or there's a lot of drawing and then there's some amount of procrastination. <laughs> you, because I can relate. <laughs> Yeah, and the procrastination takes the form for me of thinking, rethinking things that I've said or theses that I've come up with that mm-hmm. I want to expand expand on. So I will, in a way, it's, I think of it as procrastination because I'm second guessing something that I'm already doing and say, am I really wanting to say this or do this? And so I'll go back and read. And then sometimes it's just pure procrastination of watching Architectural Digest I don't know if you know, on YouTube. <laughs> That's my go-to. I will architectural digest all the time. I will definitely vanity fair. Is it the is it 73 questions, 61 <laughs> questions, yes, whatever yes. it might be? Yeah, I will definitely do that. And of course, the podcasts. Do you think you're a perfectionist? Are you a perfectionist? I would say that I have been called a perfectionist <laughs> by several people. And I think I don't, I do and I don't identify with the term. The label, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good at saying, okay, this is done in terms Mm. of a painting or when I feel done in terms of just like a frustration, I will let it go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it pops, it rears its head up in in places that I wouldn't always expect. I was applying for something the other day for a fellowship in Rome. Yeah. And I was encouraged to apply by several people and I... But at the last minute, I applied, I started late, and then at the last minute, I just felt like my essay wasn't good enough mm-hmm. and that I didn't want other people to read it because I, I felt it wasn't, it just wasn't a good representation of the yeah. idea. Yeah. And a friend said, Are, you're a perfectionist, yeah. you could have just sent it off. That kind of thing. So mm-hmm. maybe seeing it, I guess I, I pick it up where I feel like it's hurting me a little bit sometimes. Actually, there's an interesting tension that I can also relate to, which is the filling out of forms and wanting to be sure that you've gotten it just right. Mm. Because you actually aren't sure who's reading that application. Mm. And you want, yeah, you don't want to leave anything, any sort of I's undotted, T's uncrossed, that type of thing. There's a lovely, speaking of podcasts, there's a lovely podcast called Poetry Unchained. Mm. It's hosted by this Irish poet, Padraigo Tuma. And I think about two months ago, he did a reading and a sort of breakdown and analysis of beautiful poem about young, I want to say Indian, uh, immigrant living 
in the US applying to have their mother brought over to get a sort of permit or visa mm. to live with them in the US. And the poem is about the process of filling out forms, the tension of waiting, the tension of doing it just right, and the hope that comes along with that wait. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> I can completely relate to that. So yeah, I'll find the poem for you and just put it in the episode notes and also send you <laughs> yeah. a link to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, but that it's just, it touches something when I think about that word in relation to myself, mm. because... Yeah, I'm learning to be a little bit softer with myself. Mm, absolutely. And that sometimes my best is really, mm, you yeah, know. Exactly. That's, exactly. And even my not best is sometimes fine. Yeah. It'll have to do for now. Yeah, it just that's is. It. <laughs> <laughs> It'll have to do for now and that's that. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so very human, so very true. I like that. I really do like that. Let's start with the My Hero series. Mm. That was uh, included in the Sharjah Biennale and it was called Thinking Historically. What you said about it when you did post about it on Instagram is that it's it's been a dream to see many of the works from the series come together. And uh, you gave your gratitude uh, to the Sharjah Art Foundation and the phenomenal team that you talked about. And with the paint, with these paintings, these portraits, the My Hero series, you're talking about history, how we understand it, how we think about it, how we memorialize, who we memorialize, who we choose to memorialize, and I guess just how we understand ourselves through our heroes, whoever they might be. What set you on that course? I mean, there's a couple of different stories that I tell about the genesis of that mm -hmm. project. One is that, and they're all true, but they're located at different moments in time. Sure. One story that I tell is just about sitting in my studio, it must have been 2012 or so, and I was looking at the sort of notes in my wallet and noticing the banknotes in my wallet and mm -hmm. noticing that Nelson Mandela's face was on all of them. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, but don't we have some other heroes that we want sure, to celebrate? Sure. And, that, and it just became this moment where I was thinking about that very yeah nationalist project of creating heroes in order to bring countries together and to have a narrative that yeah. everyone can buy into or yeah settle on in terms of how we tell our story of where where we are in history and how we got there yeah so mm -hmm. that's like it goes down in the books in the more mainstream consumption of history so on the one hand i was just i was thinking about that fact, but also wondering if what's the alternative? Sure. What does it mean to spread out the story a little thinner and wider and say, maybe this person's contribution was worked in this particular way, but they needed these other five people around them to make whatever yeah, they did absolutely. happen. And so it, yeah, it thins out the role of that of that mm -hmm. one, that single mm -hmm. great genius. It does, <laughs> yeah. right? When you say, The oh, role well, of the father of the nation, yes. this great statesman whose charisma and charm and yes. political acuity was able to just hold an entire nation together. Right. Really? Or, as you propose, or were there, all the other... Right. Yeah, and, the, and what does it mean... For me, it's, it's an empowering... It's an empowering thing to... Um, 
for individuals to know that it's not just on you. You're part of a community. You're part of a movement. Your you, your contributions matter. So whether you're in the front or you're behind, really <laughs> in the shadows pushing something, your contribution matters. Yeah. So I so there was something. So that's that's often the story that I tell, but. I think it started earlier with thinking about both of my parents. I didn't write the artsy bio. (laughs) I don't know who wrote that. They did a good job. But my mother was an activist as well. She worked alongside my father. She was working on... uh, Your Greek-American mother and your South African father, yeah, who was in exile. Yeah, my my mother was working on anti-dictatorial movement work against the junta in Greece, Mm. so against the generals who were controlling Greece. So she was a communist and met my father doing activist work Mm -hmm. in activist circles and then started working with him on anti-apartheid work. And and both of them were these huge figures for me. And yet in in the history books, their names are not necessarily there. Maybe they're in somebody's PhD who wrote something about some obscure thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, side thing yeah. and acknowledges their contribution, but they were both there. And so for me, I think I grew up seeing both of them alongside these great people. I met um, Adelaide Tambo as a eight-year-old little yeah. girl. They yeah. re- the Tambos received us in London when we left America to start moving to Southern Africa. So, yeah, I was really thinking about them as well. What does their contribution mean? How do I, can they be heroes in my own eyes? I think, and I'm going to, yeah, I'm I'm responding as you've asked me a question, but uh, it's something that I've also thought about quite a lot, speaking of the Tambors. My grandmother, both my grandmothers, in fact, lived in Watville on the East Rand in Benoni, where the Tambors lived for some time. And my paternal grandmother, for instance, was also a community organizer and activist in her way, very defiant in her general stance and posture and language and ambition on a daily, hourly basis. Goodness knows we all experience that. But also when the ANC is banned and the PAC is banned and all those parties are banned and you've got the UDF uh, movement and my my own mother being arrested whilst pregnant with my second sister and all those stories I think are worth telling, need to be told. And I don't think it thins anything out. What it does is it gives us a plumper, more nuanced, more human experience of our history so that we don't just spit out platitudes on Heritage Day about Nelson Mandela, about Walter Sisulu, or about the same 10 or 12 figures. To know that daily life and daily work and daily interactions and ambitions and planting that vegetable garden and striving to be a doctor, even though you had to get your husband's permission to go to medical school. Those are all acts of defiance and they're all important. And as you say, there's all weave that cloth of resistance and struggle and freedom, ultimately. You I know? love that. Yeah. yeah. And I love I love the sort of thin versus plump. <laughs> mm, we need plumpness and yeah. softness. And, and, and richness. Yeah, and richness I mean, in because it does enrich mm. the story and it enriches our sort of conception, like you're saying, of what is possible, what is necessary, what is useful, what is, can we value our own contributions? That's been, that's something that I'm still working with in myself. Yeah. Can yeah. I value what I contribute, you know? We continue our conversation after the short break.
Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. The first time I saw your gymnasium series, what was I struck by? Obviously, I was struck by these beautiful paintings, faceless paintings of black girls and black athletes in the sort of, yeah, in the gymnasium. And knowing, first of all, on a sort of international or competitive stage that um, those tend to be few and far between, unfortunately, for many reasons. But just reading about your gymnasium series, looking at the yeah, the portrayal of gymnasts of gymnasiums. And I know that series was already, that series kicked off with the found picture. And if you could just briefly just tell us what it is or what it was about it that grabbed you and just kicked off such an arresting series. And I guess one that connects so viscerally uh, with so many people before they've even had time to or absolutely, because they haven't had time initially to interrogate what's so striking about this? Why does it speak to me? And I want to know more. So you want to know about the original picture or... That original picture and why it compelled you to start that series. You know, the, the original picture was of a single white gymnast in the middle of the spring floor, spring mm-hmm. floor, with judges around. <clears throat> and I think what I have always done is respond to source images and made them my own, mm-hmm. put them in my own context and, um, and reimagined them. And the impulse to just create black figures with (laughs) surrounding this single black performer, athlete, individual in the middle of the floor was second nature. Mm. I wanted to draw myself, my ancestors, my people. So it was very, it was almost instinctual in a way, just to reimagine that image. But there was obviously making art as a way of thinking Mm. and of releasing things and working through yeah the un, unformed that's in your mind and in your body sure and so i think initially i mean at that time in particular i, I don't know if simone biles was really around i mean i guess she was doing her thing but yeah. she hadn't ascended yeah that was back in around 2012 around 2012 yeah yeah and I just, I, it was, it, and it was a one-off. The series didn't really start until years later, but yeah. there, there was this sense of, I think it was the beginning more than anything else of reimagining what that performance space could be. Yeah. So rather than it being a space of competition and judgment and scrutiny mm-hmm. and winning or losing. Yeah. There's this celebratory pose of this person with their hands up. They've just completed something. They've presented themselves yeah. to 
to a sort of a ring around them of judges. Mm. But those judges are not judges. They're, yeah. For me, they were ancestors, yeah. actually. So it was something about presenting yourself in front of those who came before you and not for judgment, not for anything, just to be with, saying, I'm here now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if, if actually you're making me think of in the years before I painted that, I hadn't been painting very much. And I'd been making a film, a very unknown, <laughs> unviewed film. <laughs> <she> about, laughs. <laughs> a film about my, um, my lineage mm-hmm. on my father's side and just learning small customs of walking into a house and greeting the ancestors before you, before you enter, acknowledging them. Yeah. And so that was very much on my mind. And it was the beginning of, I would say, a, a sort of acknowledgement of the spiritual in my own life, having yes. been brought up by these parents who were, as I mentioned, my mom was a mm-hmm. communist and my father. They were, <laughs> there was like atheism was in the house, yes. even though spirituality was very much a part of both sides mm-hmm. of my um, family. Both family, yeah. Yeah, both families. Yeah. and. So it was, yeah, it was looking back for something, looking behind me for mm-hmm. something else. A grounding, a context, maybe a springboard into your own way forward, your all own spiritual way forward. All of those things. Yeah. And also, I think looking to maybe just own something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was like to belong to something. I think my brother and I were brought up not saying that we were American when we were born in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the most famous city in, in the United States of America. Yeah. And yet our parents said, you're not American. Yeah. Uh, you're not of this place. You are of South Africa. You're of, of your mother's ancestral home, which is actually in Turkey. Mm. Her people were expelled from that village in the Black Sea. Yeah. So that doesn't, but that's, you are these things. You're not this thing. And, and and then coming here and feeling, am I uh, am I this thing? I'm a bit weird. I'm a ver- weird version of this thing. <laughs> You're supposedly home now, but yeah. home doesn't feel Home's, natural. Yeah. I don't know if that's the word you'd use. Brand new. Mm. Home is, it's already formed. It's been going on without us. How do we slip in to, to find belonging? So for me, yeah, that's what was arising. Mm. And that's, yeah, that was the beginning of learning how to find and I'm still learning yeah. how to find who I also am. I'm me, and I'm complete in sure. myself, but I'm made up of all these people. Yeah. Those heroes that you're painting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those girls in the gymnasium. What I found quite interesting, reading some interviews about you coming back home to South Africa, exactly, or coming to South Africa, was it early 90s? Yeah. Yeah. And... I was struck by how what you've just said, trying to figure out how do I slot into this place that I've been or I've always been taught was home. And yet at the same time, I imagine your father is going through the exact same experience in a very different way, because, of course, he's lived here. He's known this place, but in a very different way. He left <laughs> during a bar date. And what is this home where at that time I might have been I was definitely in primary school at a mixed race, more multiracial rather, school, nursery school and primary school. And even then, of course, there were few and far between. But home is also different for your father. How did that, how did all those feelings and all those conversations, how did you synthesize them and push through them to start thinking about how you're going to 
use them as fuel or as an impetus to further explore who you also are. And I guess in many ways I'm setting us up for a conversation about a conversation about your focus and work on athletics. I'm thinking of the same track short film mm. that you did, which is so arresting and so compelling. And the use of that footage was thinking about and sifting through the British, the British Commonwealth and Empire Games. Sure. Because you are also that. <laughs> or that also informed your identity somehow. Yeah. I think um, those initial, you know, I, I think my work at once can seem impersonal. Like I'm talking about this thing outside there, mm -hmm. the structure, the experience of um, black athletes, athletes of color in traditionally sort of white spaces or structures that are have white supremacist values mm -hmm. as their foundation. And for me, it's, of course, the personal is political and the, <laughs> and the political is personal. And I do, I think of all my work as some version of self-portraiture. I've talked about the Hero series as a, like an extended autobiographical self-portraiture project. Yeah. Because all those people make in aggregate are me. Like they've all informed who I am and how I think about the world to some degree. And then the work in athletics has really brought together two things that I care about quite deeply, which is movement mm -hmm. and making yeah. things. And to talk about the same track... You know, I was invited by an NGO, uh, an arts NGO called Eastside Projects to make that project in response to, in, in as part of the Commonwealth Games Festival, yeah. which is an ancient, ancient, <laughs> it's a very, an old tradition as yeah. part of the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Like the festival went hand in hand with the games from the, with the Empire Games from the beginnings of the empire, yeah. <laughs> of consolidating the empire. and. And so I had to make a, so it became quite personal quite quickly. I thought, do I want to participate in this? Mm -hmm. Why are we celebrating the Commonwealth? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't, should it exist? I hadn't actually really thought about it too much before that. This thing that I knew we belonged to and we had a rocky relationship with mm -hmm. over time yeah, <laughs> for various yeah. reasons. Uh -huh. But I decided to do that project. And when you just talk about like thinking about my spiritual journey and finding my, the journey of finding myself and thinking about that footage, I still, I have this reaction to that film as if I didn't make it. Mm. And I made it with a group of people, yes. wonderful yeah. editors and researchers mm -hmm. and, and collaborators on it. But I, it still feels like something outside of my own creativity. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I feel that is that every time I look at the people in those images, I'm just so moved and struck by what they went through, what they are going through, mm -hmm. what we are, the fights that we're still fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in a sense, yeah, that film, the, the sort of, and the way that I tried to work with the footage was to 
recontextualized the images so that they they read in a completely different way yeah. and they read in a much more sort of empowered ra- way mm-hmm. because those images were stolen obviously yeah. they were they were filmed by filmmakers who took them and told whatever stories they wanted to elsewhere sure. about us yeah and in the beginning of the film there are these three faces that you see so the the starter Guy, I don't know what his name is. <laughs> what would you call him? Actually, that even one. I've painted a, <laughs> we'll an call image him the of starter. A, the, yeah. the starter. Says, "Take your marks, get set, go." And yeah. then he, he then he fires the the pistol, and but but in between firing the pistol and the runners running, you see these three faces, and they're they they were initially, if you see the sort of raw footage, yeah. they were taken. They were showing the diversity and prime examples of the noble citizens of the Commonwealth. And mm. these are the athletes that we want to represent our Commonwealth. Sure. Their, their faces were co-opted for this like yeah. evil project. Yeah. And I just, I saw them as witnesses. Mm-hmm. I saw them as my ancestors, our ancestors, and witnesses that they're watching how this is going to unfold and so i hold the, i hold the shot on each of their faces for a little bit yeah we know where this is going yeah. we are watching we and we will be there yeah our judgment is here <laughs> and so for me that's yeah that's how i don't know if i can sum anything up but i i just feel in in these ways i'm trying to work with images and work with my own sense of the possibilities that lie in reimagining history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my own history and world history and giving it yeah giving it some kind of other power the yeah. power that actually is inherently there but yeah. needs to be let out somehow mm-hmm. exposed yeah yeah i was really obviously struck by of course the same track the short form as part of equations of the body at rest as well so and as you talk about that um sense of images as you say taken from colonies taken from the empire utilized how however they were utilized and there there's this footage of the heads of the british empire whether it's now deceased uh, queen elizabeth the then prince charles at various stop offs at uh, commonwealth countries or on his empire tour um I almost said trucking and driving with the natives, <laughs> dancing <laughs> with the respective so, people there of is, those countries. There's so much footage of him <laughs> dancing with people. I mean, it's unbelievable. You could make your own film. If someone Just wants to that. do that, you could make your own film on Charles dancing yeah. with people. And, and then, of course, there's that. And then there's the, there's those, the resistance in later, most of contemporary modern footage, footage of resistance against empire itself or the effects of empire, whether it's burning oil fields, I'm, I want to say it's in Nigeria, where there's yeah. protests against yes. BP and British Petroleum, then that evokes memories and thoughts about business as an extension or a tool of empire to colonize, to enrich to enrich empire. But you think of people like Ken Saraweba, who were hanged for their activism and speaking out against all of these things. And it's, as you say, the personal is political, but it's incredibly evocative because you realize and what I'm what what I also found in the in the gymnasium series as well is we're not very far if at all removed from the structures, these hard, cold, steely structures that underpin 
the contemporary world that we live in. We're not far removed from it in any way, but we do try to, as we were saying off mic early on, sometimes we get distracted by the shiny, glossy things of contemporary lives, whether it's the latest fashion or clothes or me getting my new my hair done <laughs> later yeah. on this afternoon. And that's also part of life, right? And the part of the artist's life, which is carrying on while in the space, carrying on despite being in the space. I think of those soft, soft lines of the gymnasts' bodies and the athletes' bodies across these sort of, or within this sort of architectural, very hard, straight line space. And you think, yeah, I guess that's, in many ways, it feels like modern life. <laughs> you yeah. go into corporate, cal- the corporate world or just the big bad, world, big bad world and you make do and you flourish somehow in mm. spite of. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And I feel, especially with that film where you're watching n- the track, the f- camera sort of follows nobody around, mm. around the track mm. over time mm. and the athletes are not in that film. And, yeah. and it's just... That's the, the sort of spectacle that you're talking about with yeah. the shiny thing. Which is that shimmer that's going around the track. Yeah. yeah. But what, I guess for me, that film was about what happens when you remove the spectacle of mm. sport. What happens when we take away those mm. shiny things? What happens when you take away that distraction, actually? Yeah. And then what is revealed? What mm. remains? And things become clear. It doesn't make it easier to necessarily to you know, those structures or, but I guess it, it helps you to see actually what's going on. Maybe it just plants something in your mind mm-hmm. that like, actually, there's another way of being that with our daughter, we really want her to understand that things are made. Mm-hmm. That, so we talk, she finds it endlessly irritating, but <laughs> yeah. we talk about the cartoons that she watches or the toys that she's, mm-hmm. and when we go then into the toy shop and we see a, a toy that's related to a cartoon, we talk about the fact that, oh, there's somebody who made the cartoon, who made the toy, they want you to make that association. There's some, that there's an intelligence going on beside, outside of what she, behind what she is seeing and consuming no? and being entertained by yeah and being distracted yeah it's just so that she knows whether we've had friends who are animators that's that's where she's seeing it the most mm-hmm. or just even friends who make clothes or mm-hmm. even in for me it's i love her seeing di us do diy things around the house because i want her to see that this is that you don't don't take it for granted this is all constructed mm-hmm. all of this by somebody mm-hmm. I think that's such an empowering. We'll see how she turns out. <laughs> but we'll I think touch base in we'll touch base in fifteen years. Fifteen time. years, we'll see. But I think that's such an empowering thing to know that it's so frustrating that you can't take apart an iPhone. I, on some level, I want her to have a PC so that she knows she can take it apart and put yeah. it back together again. Yeah. And all right, now you're evoking matters of right to repair and all sorts of matters, <laughs> yeah. right? But yeah, it's really integral to our experience and understanding of our. Um, our agency and our lives. What I'm really curious about Tenjiwe is when when you paint, there's been much sort of reflection and much written about the fact that we have these pastel coloured, almost colour blocked paintings and very muted tones, of course, and the lack of that background and the foregrounding, therefore, of the subject, of the person. And... I'm very curious to find out from you in the different, not disciplines, in the different, what's the word that I'm looking for? 
that you've worked in. Uh, let me just say disciplines for now. In the different disciplines media. that you've... Media. Yeah, that's the word. Shucks. Art podcast. Hello. In the different media that you've worked in, what are each of those expressing for you? For instance, whether it's performance, whether it is a video, an installation, whether it's the painting, whether it is painting, what is it in sort of Tenjue's artistic urge that each of those satisfy? Yeah, and I think... I just love the possibility, the endless possibility of being able to make mm-hmm. things. So whether yeah. it's making something with my body or with language or, um, you know, I've talked about social practice yeah. in my wor- work. And I really define that on my, sort of my own terms. It is, a, it's a, it is a, an artistic, like you're saying, discipline or way of making. Yeah. But just to extend my practice to almost everything or anything. And for me, there's like a, there's a joy in that. When being able to use what's available to make things. So I, painting is quite solitary and it, it's for me. I know I have friends who are in a painting duo. They paint together on the same work, but it's quite solitary and meditative, so I use it as a space to think and mm-hmm. to consider and to work out my own thinking around a variety of things, issues, yeah. thinking about race, thinking about class, thinking about gender, thinking about those things are coming up as I'm painting. And then I make a decision to paint someone's skin tone slightly different or paint someone to look more femme or more mm-hmm. masculine or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, they each offer, they just each offer a space to, I would say, to like find joy through interaction and through using my body. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes some ideas suit certain media. Better. Yeah. yeah. People also say, they also say mediums, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyways, mediums. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so it's. It's, I'm just that I think that's why I wanted to be an artist is mm. because I just the range of things that one can do and call it art yeah. are <laughs> you can be cynical <laughs> about it yes, yes, you can be quite cynical it can get ugly yeah. but but also <laughs> and to and not have to conform I guess mm. that's what I'm saying when when I say call it art it means yeah. really to not have to conform to a specific it's not a book. It's not a you could it can be any it could be a book and a performance. It could mm-hmm. be yeah. it's like there's so much it allows me to think laterally yeah. and be laterally. Yeah. Very fluid. A cheesy question that I always ask at the end of uh, our conversations on the Latitudes podcast, stolen from Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> the what greatest do you know? <laughs> the queen of talk. <laughs> Tenji and Gossi, what do you know for sure? Oh. I know for sure. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm super. This I might give you a cheesy answer, but I I really bring all the cheese. I'm gonna bring pile the cheese. it on. I don't know. This is just where I am today, but I just know that. Um, I really know that it's. Yeah, just something about our hearts. I know that it's just so important for us to all like touch in. Just to touch in with what is there, whatever, if it's 
something that you can express or not. But I just, I feel, like I said to my my daughter today, she got out the car and she was just feeling grumpy. And mm-hmm. I just said, if you need to just touch in with your heart. And she looked at me for a second and then rolled her eyes. Yeah, I just, I really feel like if we just did that in re- in response to everything, like to everything that comes up during a day mm-hmm. or to big questions, like if leaders manage to do that once a day, I really feel like mm. we'd live in a different world. Mm-hmm. I know it's, I know that's very, sounds heal the worldly, but it really, I think we, I think we forget that we're human beings sometimes yeah. and that we are like, we're human beings. We're beings. Mm. These like feeling sensitive, powerful beings. And whether you believe in the spiritual world or aliens or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, or ancestral connections, we are beings. And I think that if we just managed to touch in with that a little bit more, it would really make a a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The life that you hope that each of your pieces is experiencing within the walls of whichever collector's home or house, office that they're now sitting in. What are you hoping for those pieces? Number one, I hope that they're not just in collector's houses. <laughs> I think <laughs> Most that, importantly. Yes. Yeah. I, it's also important for me to have work that's not not owned by anybody. And, that it, that, and then, of course, work that exists in public institutions and just to say that like that's mm-hmm. really important for my for me that my work just can exist in a variety of spaces but i guess i just i hope that people look and hear what i'm saying and not forget that it's not just a it's not an acquisition if we're talking about the collectors it's yeah. not just something that you like visually but it's something that actually touches you of course, and that you remember what I'm actually saying. I think that's, <laughs> it's sometimes it's trendy to collect things and sometimes people <laughs> want to be, they, but they yeah. actually forget what this person is saying. And I think that remembering what the person is actually saying or interpreting and trying to interpret it is, is important. Mm. That's the work and that's the worth of the art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so really much. Really appreciate for your it. Wonderful approach to this. I really oh, enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment, or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafilwem Bakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Media. And a big thank you to the Latitudes team. Mm-hmm.